Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. This talk concludes our series on 1 Kings and takes us to the dramatic end of the life of King Ahab. This passage gives us the clearest understanding yet of why God usually seems to be hidden and what causes him to break his silence. Let's get right into it this morning, okay? Ha! Um, I have, uh, I've been, uh, I'm searching for the right word to the impact of this reading and this fresh study through the Kings has been to me. There have been times when it just, uh, just been overwhelming to me what, to begin to see the scope of what God is doing in the world. Understand where we are in what's being shown to us in this because the writer of Kings is writing. When he's putting these things down and laying out this history of Israel, this anonymous prophet, only God knows the name of the man who wrote this book. There are some scholars who see that this book is so brilliant it couldn't have been written by one person. That's like saying War and Peace is so brilliant it could not have been written by one person. Well, nobody could have written it. I mean, and so, so the scholarly alternative is that this book was written by a committee. Yeah, like a committee can come up with, with a unified vision that brings together... Uh, forget it. I'm not even going to, I'm just going to cut my rant short and get right into it. As I said, I was going to do. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 20 and following. We're going to see today the end of Ahab. And in the process, we're going to see something that isn't too surprising, for, namely how big of a weasel that Ahab really is. But we're all, we are going to see something, I believe, that's very surprising about God and his dealings with Ahab. In the process of doing that, perhaps, God, by his Holy Spirit, will show us a little bit better picture of why things are in the world today the way they are. God's purposes are not man's purposes. God is sovereign over all, but it is not God's purpose to do what Satan's purpose is, which is to accumulate as much political and military and forceful power in this world to force his will on all the other on all the rest of the world. That is not God's way. That's not what God's will is. That's what not what God's purpose is. That's a satanic approach to world rule. Jesus Christ is has come to us. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the kingdoms of this world shall 
at the appointed time become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. But His kingdom is not going to be like the kingdoms of the world. What we are seeing here is how the kingdoms of the world operate and then how God is going to accomplish His purpose which is not the purpose of the kingdoms of the world, but He is going to be using the purpose of the kings and kingdoms of this world to accomplish His own purpose. Well, we've seen before how the the spiritual war, the war in the heavens, did break out. Finally, because a line had been crossed that God was not going to allow to be crossed, and that is to allow His people to fall into abject denial of the existence of, of the living God. He was not, the rest of the world may do that. He was not going to permit his people to lose his name. Much else God was going to permit, but he was not going to permit his people to lose his name. Thus, the purpose of Elijah was to come and to interrupt. through the exertion of divine power, the program of Satan to take away the name of the Lord God, the name of the living God, from His people. God was not going to let that happen. God will eventually let His people go into captivity, but He is not going to let them lose His name. So the ministry of Elijah, but Elijah was depressed and disappointed because after his great victory, he discovered that the war was still going on. He thought that this was the decisive blow. He thought that this was, well, it was the decisive blow, but God had other purposes. God is not like Satan. God does not manipulate, force, impress his will upon the world. He brings the world in and woos the world by His Spirit. And He's got to take Elijah aside and show him that. Now, let me tell you something about Elijah. About This is a crucial point in Elijah's ministry. A lot of people say Elijah was not the same. Well, that's true. He wasn't. I want you to understand something about what has taken place in the life of Elijah. Elijah is broken. He is broken. Now let me tell you the paradox of that. That's a good thing. Here's the deal. I can already I can tell you this. Before Elijah ever showed up on the doorstep of King Ahab, he was all he had already experienced a breaking from the Lord. How do I know that? Because Elijah moved at the will and word of God and didn't doubt a thing. Because why? How, how do you get to that place? You get to that place only. We are willful people. And by the way, you see that Elijah was a strong man with a strong will. You can see that in his character. We are willful people. We don't give it up easily. Elijah had already gone through a breaking place in his life. Before he ever was brought forward into public. Before he ever spoke to King Ahab. Before he ever left the, uh, the plains of Gilead to come over and speak to Ahab. 
He had already experienced in his life a breaking so that when God touched, he moved. But it is as we sang, as we're going to sing this morning. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. <clears throat> Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. Elijah was a man of great power. The power of God is known through our weakness. And Elijah had done, had accomplished great things through prayer. And he was a man, he wasn't any different from us. James stresses that point. Elijah was not any different from us. And yet he accomplished great things through prayer. But Elijah... He's disappointed. God takes him aside and God has to speak to him and remind him, I'm still working my purposes out. You're not alone. You feel alone. It doesn't look like anybody else is around, but you're not alone. There are other people. And you need to go. And basically what God sends Elijah to do says, You've got, I've got two appointments for you. You are going to appoint, you are going to anoint Jehu a general in Ahab's army and he's going to overthrow the house of Ahab. You are going to anoint Hazael in Syria, a, a general in Syria, and he is going to overthrow Ben-Hadad. And you are going to anoint Elisha and he's going to take your place. Why? In all of these things, why? Because the struggle goes on to the next generation. Get a little humility, Elijah. It doesn't begin and end with you. And Elijah comes out, and Elijah is again <coughs> broken. And that's a good thing. He's not the same, but that's a good thing. His power. There's not, when he speaks, his power is, it, there's no Elijah in there. It's Jehovah. Now, so now we come to this story of the end of Ahab. How's that for a, an abbreviated introduction? We, we get into that? Okay, now. I think that's probably the shortest one we've had yet. Uh, let me get started before I ruin it. Okay, chapter 20, verse 1. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mustered his entire army. Accompanied by 32 kings with their horses and chariots, he went up and besieged Samaria and attacked it, sent messengers to the city of Ahab, king of Israel, saying, This is what Ben-Hadad says. Your silver and your gold are mine. The best of your wives and children are mine. The king of Israel answered, Just as I say, my lord the king, I and all I have are yours. So far, what we've got here is military diplomacy. Ben-Hadad says, okay, Ahab, I'm going to claim everything you've got. I want it. And Ahab says, I don't want to fight this fight. Go ahead. I'm, whatever I've got is yours. Well, then the messenger, so far, everything's proceeding according to conventional diplomacy because that was all convention. This was all the formality of it. Basically, what this was saying is, okay, I will be... You know, I'll, I will be your vassal state. I will 
send you tribute and you know you'll you'll be the overlord but I'm still going to no what uh, Ben Haddad says Ben Haddad isn't satisfied with that verse 5 the messengers came again and said this is what Ben Haddad says I sent to demand your silver and your gold your wives and children but about this time tomorrow I'm going to send my officials to search your palace and the houses of your officials and they'll seize everything you value and carry it away in other words we're going to do an eyeball audit and we're going to just we're not going to trust you to to tell us what you've got we're going to actually go in and, and see what you've got and when we see something that we like if you like it too we're going to take it Why? Because we're just going to stick it to you. Well, this Ahab cannot tolerate. And so he gets together all the elders of the land and says to them, see how this man is looking for trouble. (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. The the writer of this is... is, He's got tongue in cheek here. See this guy. I mean, this guy's just looking for trouble. I've given him everything he wanted, and, and he just, and, and they said, okay, yeah, whatever. So he said, the elders and all the people answered, don't listen to him or agree to his demands. Now, this is important because what Ahab has just done, he has, has committed himself to an all-out shooting war with the more powerful nation to the north. Okay. So he has to have political support. That's what he's doing. He is doing, in other words, what is Ahab doing? He is doing what the kings of the earth have to do. They have to amass political power. Now let me tell you about politics. Let me give you a a brief nation definition of politics. For real, seriously, not tongue in cheek. This is as serious serious as I can be. Definition of politics. Politics is the acquisition of power for the accomplishment of some end. Okay? Everybody's a politician. Two-year-olds are politicians. Okay? Everybody's into politics. It's all about acquiring power to accomplish some end. That is neither moral nor immoral. It's just what the activity of politics is about. It can be conducted with a moral base or an immoral base or an amoral base, which is just another way of saying immoral base. But you know, we've got... That, that's what politics is about. It's the, about the acquisition of power. It's neither good or evil, but this is what kings have to do. They've got to get together their power. David had to do the same thing. He couldn't go to war if he didn't have support for it. Ahab can't go to war unless he's got the background, the political support, because these are the people that he's going to be counting on to fight for him, to send him uh, tax revenue so he can pay for every, you know, so all of this. So he's got this. He's got it ready. He's going to war. Okay. In other words, he's doing everything by the book and none of it by God's book. See who he doesn't call? He doesn't call a prophet. He doesn't call to seek what is God's word on this. He doesn't pray. He doesn't seek God's face. He certainly is not intending to turn from his wicked ways. Because as far as he's concerned... The living God isn't there. That is a key. All of this is a key to what's going on with Ahab. And all of this is going to take us to the end of Ahab. So he replied to Ben-Hadad's messengers, Go tell my lord the king, your servant will do all you demand of me the first time, but this demand I can't meet. And they went and took the answer back to Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad sent another messenger to Abraham, or to Ahab, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if enough dust remains in Samaria to give each of my men a handful. And the king of Israel answered, Tell him who... Tell him, one who puts on his armor should not boast as one who takes it off. And so now we've got yo mama going on back and forth. (laughs) By the way, that's not a bad proverb. Let not the one who puts on his armor boast as the one who takes it off. You know, you so you, you we so see this in, in professional athletes and you know all you know all this you know, t- anyway. Let's go on. Uh, meanwhile, a prophet came to Ahab. So God, you know, Ahab didn't summon a prophet, so God just sent one to him. Notice who this prophet is not. It's not Elijah. Why is it important that this story is slipped in here before? The other, and why is it important that this prophet is not Elijah? Think about it for a second. God said there were others. God said you've got other people out there. You're not alone out here. You're not even the only prophet left, let alone the only one who hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. Plus, also, you know, Jezebel has issues with Elijah. Yeah, maybe so. But Elijah, at this back, at this point, though, we can presume that on his way back. And with the pretty public uh, selection of Elisha and all of that, that's, that's a pretty big deal, especially the big feast that was held and all of that. Yeah, that's, so it's, it's known that Elijah's back in town, and obviously Elijah is not afraid of Jezebel anymore. That's one of the indications that he's broken. Let me tell you what breaking is. It means you don't have anything more to lose. It's all God's. It's all his. And this demand that, Ahab, that Ben-Hadad sent to Ahab, that's the demand that God sends to all of us. Everything you have is mine. Your silver and your gold, the best, not only the best, everything that you have is mine. And I can take it whenever I want it. And when you have reached a point of breaking, that's good with you. That's good with you. Don't you think saying that the prophet also told Ahab and Jezebel that they only need to have more than one man to fight against? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. It's, it's, it's not just Elijah. Elijah. Elijah is not the Lord, the God. Elijah is not the living God. Elijah is just Elijah one of his servants. For God, she just fought Elijah. That's right. So the prophet comes to Ahab and says, this is what the Lord says. You see this vast army? And that is an indication of something that we haven't been given that detail before. He said, look out at the vast army. He said, look at your problem, Ahab. Because Ahab's looking out here. And Ahab, is, he's gone ahead. He was willing to surrender until they brought this latest demand. Why? Because that, he didn't want to face that. But now he has to face that. And he's wavering. He has to, but he's wavering. He didn't mind turning over anything in Israel, but they wanted his personal They wanted his personal stuff, that's true. Absolutely. So as long as somebody else was giving, he was happy. You see this fast army? I will give it into your hand today, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Yeah. But who will do this, said Ahab. This is what the Lord says. The young officers or the provincial commanders will do it. The inexperienced guys, not the veterans. 
not the veterans, the cadets. Send in the Corps of Cadets. And who will start the battle? You will. <laughs> it's me. Yeah, go in there, gather your cadets, and go in front of them, command them, you win. So Ahab's, Ahab astonishingly obeyed the word of the Lord. He summoned the young officers of the provincial commanders, 232 men. Then he assembled all the rest of the Israelites, 7,000 in all. They set out at noon while Ben-Hadad and their 32 kings allied with them and were in their tents getting drunk. Okay, <laughs> that may be one clue to the uh, defeat of Ben-Hadad here. They were all getting plastered in the king's tent. You think that they were concerned about Ahab's strength? Not a bit. This is, they were set up for a bushwhack. I mean, they, this was an ambush made to order. And Ben-Hadad dispatched scouts who reported men are advancing from Samaria. They said, well, if they've come out for peace, let them come alive. And if they've come out for war, take them alive. <laughs> so, you see, Ben-Hadad is not really... He's not really cogent at this point. <clears throat> it is obvious he is not sober. Just that one remark. He is not sober. So the young off ends... Well, bottom line is Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, escaped on horseback with some of his horsemen. That's about it. Uh, and the, verse 21, the king of Israel advanced, overpowered the horses and chariots and inflicted heavy losses on the Arameans. And afterward, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said, okay, now you, you have won this battle. You have not won the war. Strengthen the, your position. See what has to be done because next spring, the king of Aram will attack you again. This is not over. So meanwhile, the king of the Aram, uh, the officials of the king of Aram advised him, Verse 23, their gods are the gods of the hills. That's why they were too strong for us. If we fight them on the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So, our strategy next time is to lure them out to the plain where our horses and chariots will be effective. Okay, next spring, verse 26. Then Hadad mustered the Arameans, went up to affect to fight against Israel, and the Israelites were also mustered and given provisions. They marched out to meet them. Love the picturesque description here. The Israelites camped opposite them like two small flocks of goats while the Arameans covered the countryside. You think they feel a little overwhelmed right now. Now remember, Ahab is not one of those like David who goes back and finds comfort in the the history of Israel, you know, and how God has fought for them before. Because God doesn't fight for people like Ahab, does he? A man of God came up and told the king of Israel, this is what the Lord says, because the Arameans think the Lord is a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, I will deliver this vast army into your hands and you will know that I am Yahweh. Why is God fighting for Ahab? For his name. These people think that I'm strong up there in the hills, but I'm weak down here in the, in the plains. Let's show them how wrong they are. You're going to get the benefit of a victory 
but my name will be exalted. Not just among them, but I want you to know I am the Lord. The same point that Elijah made on Mount Carmel, God is the living God. God is now making through Ahab's own battlefield preparations. Let's see. Let me just kind of cut to the chase. Uh, yeah, the Arameans lost big time. It was a slaughter. It was a slaughter. And verse 31, his officials said to him, Look, we've heard the kings of the house of Israel are merciful. Let's go to the king of Israel with sackcloth around our waist and ropes around our heads and perhaps he'll spare your life. So wearing sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, they went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, Please let me live. And the king answered, This is Ahab. Regarding a king who has shown only that he wants Ahab to eat dirt before his feet. Twice. And Ahab's remark is, is he still alive? He's my brother. I'm telling you, Ahab is a liberal. He is a liberal theologically. He is a liberal politically. In the absolute sense of the term, and in the ultimate sense that he is a humanist. He's doing things his way, and ultimately, he's a coward. And he thinks, if you know, if we just, you know, this this thing will work. We just have to to get together. And he's looking ahead, and he's thinking ahead. If I do something to him, somebody else is going to. I don't know what he's got in mind. He totally collapses here. The men took this as a good sign. We're quick to pick up his word. Yes, your brother Ben-Hadad. Go get him. And when Ben-Hadad came out, Ahab had him come into his chariot. Come on up into my chariot, bro. And I'll return to the city. And, and so this is the negotiation. Okay? Ahab has just totally wiped out the army of the king of Aram. The Syrian king, Ben-Hadad, he has totally wiped him out. Ben-Hadad has no bargaining chips. Having no bargaining chips except one thing. Ahab is a weasel. And knowing that Ahab is a weasel, and having a clear view of the fact that Ahab is a weasel, Ben-Hadad starts out weaseling him and begins to negotiate a settlement, a peace. And here's, the, here's what he said. I'll tell you what. I will give back some of the cities that we took from your father. I'll give them back. You can have the Israelite cities back that we conquered and stole from you. We'll give some of that back. And I'll throw this in. You can have a booth in the market in Damascus. What do you say? 
And Ahab, oh, you want to sell a used car to this guy. At this point, Ahab says, that sounds great. Let's put our names down on it. It was already. Everything in Aram belonged to Ahab. Ahab could have taken anything that he wanted. No, no, no. We, do, we just, we just want to. Because Ahab didn't want to fight for anymore. He didn't want to press the point. He's a weasel. By the word of the Lord, one of the sons of the prophets said to his companion, here's another prophet, one of the sons of the prophets. Who are the sons of the prophets? The sons of the prophets. This is seminary. Seminary student. Here's, and here's a clue of what's going on. Back in the days of Samuel, Samuel had set up schools of the prophets. And he had gone around and he had taught them the word of the Lord. And he had taught them how, how to seek the Lord. And taught them how to listen for God. And if God were to select them, how to hear the word of the Lord and to speak the word of the Lord. Elijah has revived the schools of the prophets. And these are, these are young men called the sons of the prophets. They've, these are vigorous young men who believe and they see Elijah. They've got Elijah as a role model. And they're coming to him. And they are hungry for the word. And they've gathered around him. And he has taught them the word. And he has taught them how to believe. And he has given them his testimony. And taught them how God has used him. And how he heard from the Lord. And how they can hear from the Lord. And how to speak the word of the Lord. Regardless of the cost. Regardless of the consequences. And here you have one of the sons of the prophets who comes. And he said to his companion, strike me with your weapon. The man refused. And he says, because you've not obeyed the Lord, as soon as you leave me, a lion will kill you. And after the man went away, a lion found him and killed him. You think God's serious at this point? And this is so strange. You, he had to be struck. Why? Because there is an object lesson that has to be taught to Ahab. And this has, in not striking him, it's not just because he was reluctant. It's because he didn't believe. And the failure of his faith led to consequences for him. God is very serious about this. So the prophet found another man and said, Strike me, please. So the man struck him and wounded him. And the prophet went and stood by the road waiting for the king, disguised himself with a headband over his eyes. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, Your servant went to the thick of the battle. Someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he's missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. And while your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. The king said, That is your sentence. You've pronounced it yourself. And then the king, prophet quickly removed the headband from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And he said to the king, this is what the Lord says, you've set free a man I determined should die. Therefore, it's your life for his life, your people for his people. Ahab's reaction to the word of the Lord, he pouted. Sullen and angry, the king of Israel went to his palace in Samaria. Now, God has pronounced a judgment on Ahab. What is the judgment on Ahab? Your life or his life? Sometime later, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. The vineyard was to Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. 
Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard for use for a vegetable garden since it's close to my palace. There's so much going on in that, that little thing. You know, that the only other time that the word vegetable garden is used anywhere in the Old Testament, this word for vegetable garden, is in Deuteronomy, and it refers to the vegetable gardens in Egypt. You know that more than one time, the people of the Lord are referred to in the prophets as a vineyard. Naboth had a vineyard. Ahab wants to plant a vegetable garden there. You make your own connections. I wonder if the vegetable garden was related to the herbs and things that some of the non-people of God, the pagans, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> don't know, don't know, don't know. But Naboth replied, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. Here's one guy, and this is why Jezebel had wanted to get rid of Yahwism in Israel, because you've got this pesky thing called the law. And there are still people who think that the law has to be honored and obeyed. There are not very many, but they keep bringing up this thing, and so long as we honor it at all in our Constitution, we've got to give some sort of lip service to it. And here's what Naboth has, doesn't have any better sense but to think, this is, according to the law, this is the portion that's given to me from my ancestors, and it belongs, I can't sell it. I cannot, it is not lawful for me to sell my land to you. <clears throat> Nahab went home, verse 4, pouting, sullen and angry. Have we seen that before? <clears throat> Because Naboth the Jezreelite said, I will not give you. And he lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. His wife Jezebel came in and said, Why are you so solemn? Why won't you eat? Because I said, Naboth the Jezreelite, sell the vineyard. If you prefer, I'll give you another vineyard in my palace. He won't give me his vineyard. I don't know if he said it quite like that, but you, you know. I bet he did. Uh, he, Jezebel, his wife, said, Is this how you act as king of Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. This is where we begin to really see Jezebel. This is where Jezebel really, I mean, she's already got a reputation, but now this is where we really see her earn her reputation for being Jezebel. Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed a seal on them, sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. And in those letters she wrote, Proclaim a day of fasting. Seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people. Seat two scoundrels opposite them. Have them testify that he's cursed both God and the king. Take him out and stone him to death. Use the law to subvert the law and defeat the law. It's easy. All you have to do is get somebody who doesn't have any care in the world whether God is alive or not. And in a testimony of, and he's, she's using the law because if in the testimony of two witnesses, according to the law, a thing is established. So you get two liars, two perjurers. And Naboth doesn't have anything else to say. They did that, and Naboth is bushwhacked. And verse 13, they took him outside the city and stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, Now get up, take possession of the vineyard. 
of Naboth the Jezreelite, he refused to sell you. He's no longer alive. He's dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard. They either knew Naboth was childless or that didn't change the law. You still couldn't take his land because it would go to his first heir. Uh, forfeit because he's cursed God and the king. Oh. It's so forfeit. falls down on your heirs. They're cursed. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Verse 20. Ahab said to Elijah, So you found me, my enemy? Yeah, I found you. Because you have sold yourself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will consume your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like that of Baasha, son of Ahijah, because you have provoked me to anger and caused Israel to sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Israel. Dogs will eat those belonging to Ahab who die in the city, and the birds of the air will feed on those who die in the country. And by the way, verse back up there, I'm sure he delivered also the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says in the place where the dogs licked up Naboth's blood. Dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Then verse 25. Now, I've got the NIV here. And I've got another contemporary translation, the ESV. Both of them put this verse in, these two verses in parentheses. Is that in your Bible also? I believe that the translators have made a mistake to include those parentheses. Look at what it says and look what follows. There is a specific point that the writer of Kings is making. And when I saw this and I saw those parentheses drop out, that was one of those moments. There was never a man like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Urged on by Jezebel, his wife, he behaved in the vilest manner by going after idols like the Amorites the Lord drove out before Israel. Now that looks like a parenthetical statement. It looks like it doesn't belong in the flow of what's going on. But take the parentheses out and read it with the flow of what's going on. You've got what's taken place and the travesty of justice the injustice, the terrible atrocity that took place of the stoning of an innocent man because Ahab wanted a vineyard. And you have this callous taking over of his possession as though, oh well, what's done is done. And then you have the judgment pronounced by Elijah. God is not going to let you get away with this. And he's not going to let Jezebel get away either. And then you have this statement. Accentuating who Ahab was, what his character was, and why he is so signally abhorred in this account. And then you have these words. When Ahab heard these words, what do you expect from what all of you have read before Ahab? What do you expect right now? What do you expect his response to do, to be? 
you expect him to be sullen and angry and to go pout. Look at what Ahab does. When Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. This is not the Ahab we know. Now, has Ahab experienced a conversion? No. Has Ahab experienced a breaking? Not of that depth that Elijah had experienced. He has not submitted his will to God. But something has taken place. Ahab, for the first time probably in his life, is taking God seriously. Ahab realizes this is for real. This is not a joke. And it has shocked him. And for one brief moment, Ahab is repentant and wishes he hadn't done something that was evil. And the next surprising thing, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. It wasn't a kind of a depth of repentance, and I don't know what kind of, how much repentance there could be for, if God did not remove the death sentence from Ahab. You notice that? The death sentence is still on it. The death sentence was on him, as a matter of fact, for previous sin and crime against his own people by, sub, by surrendering to Ben-Hadad after he had beaten Ben-Hadad. So the death sentence was already on him for treason all the way back there. This sin with Naboth had aggravated the sin so that God had said, I'm going to wipe away the house of Ahab. Now, here's an interesting, one interesting thing to me. Why did it take God so long to decide that the house of Omri and his son Ahab was not fit to go on? Do you see the long-suffering nature of God here? Do you see, Pam brought up a minute ago, said maybe God is giving Ahab one last chance. This isn't even Ahab's last chance. God keeps reaching out to Ahab. He keeps reaching out to Ahab. And I'm wondering, why Ahab? Why is he reaching out to Ahab? And one reason, I don't think, may, I don't think necessarily the only reason, but at least one reason is this. In Israel, under the covenant, the kings who ruled Israel, even though they may have broken the covenant with God, God did not break covenant with them. And the kings represented the people. When he is reaching out to the king, he's reaching out to his people. And he's saying, return to me. You have rejected me, but I have not rejected you. 
And the God of grace keeps reaching the most unworthy king in the entire Bible. And keeps saying, return to me. And I will receive you. And Ahab keeps turning him away. At this point, he cannot repeal the death sentence on Ahab. But he says, I will mitigate it. Why? Because this one time in his life, he humbled himself before me. One time, he humbled himself. So I'm going to show mercy. God wants his people to know he doesn't hate them. He continues to love them in spite of their sin. Now, hmm? how much more so? How much more so? We who are in Christ Jesus. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Chapter 22. Finally. We're getting to the real end of Ahab. For three years there was no war between Aram and Israel, but the third year Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went down to the king of Israel. Much more said about Jehoshaphat in Chronicles. Jehoshaphat was a good guy. He wasn't perfect, he wasn't... But he was a good guy. He loved God. He believed in God. And under him, the people prospered. After three years of peace, during which time, by the way, uh, Ahab allied himself with Ben-Hadad to uh, carry out a war against Shalmaneser III, of the, the king of Assyria. Assyria was an up-and-coming kingdom over up in Mesopotamia up in northern Mesopotamia, and they had to worry about that. They dealt with that and fought a battle at Karkar, which is noted in the steles there in uh, Nineveh. (coughs) And Ahab's name is mentioned. Shalmaneser presented himself as being the victor of that, but actually he didn't win anything. He was stopped in his attempt to expand his empire at that time. But it just during this time, in other words, one of the reasons that Ahab wanted to, you know, not, you know, to make nice with Ben-Hadad is to kind of see if he could use it to expand his own power base and, you know, just move that on that way. Well, things have gone sour between Ahab and Ben-Hadad. And so the king of, official, king of Israel said to his officials, Don't you know that Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, yet we're doing nothing to retake it from the king of Aram? Of all those cities that uh, Ben-Hadad decided to return to uh, Israel, nah, nah, we're going to keep Ramoth Gilead. Ramoth Gilead was a historic city. Ramoth Gilead was the city that Saul saved, which made his reputation <coughs> and his first great victory as king. So he asked Jehoshaphat, will you go with me to fight against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied to the king of Israel. By the way, Jehoshaphat had married one of Ahab's daughters in an alliance there with the king of Israel. I am as you are. My people are as your people. My horses are as your horses. Jehoshaphat, by the way, in the book of Chronicles, receives a rebuke from a prophet for, what are you doing here? You do not belong in this company. So the king of Israel brought together the prophets about 4,000, about, excuse me, about 400 men. Now these are all prophets of the Lord, mind you. These are, 
These are guys, these are seminary students who didn't quite get the message that the word of the Lord has to actually come to you. And you actually have to say what God tells you to say and not what you think God should say. You know the difference? You know the difference between a preacher who says what God's word is as opposed to what he thinks God's word ought to be? Well, he's got 400 of these prophets here and uh, says, Shall I go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I refrain? And they answered, I mean, it was a unanimous vote. They took, they, it was a consensus. The consensus of the prophets is, you should all go. You should go and you will be victorious. <coughs> Jehoshaphat said, uh, Don't you have a prophet of the Lord here we can inquire of? <laughs> Jehoshaphat looks at this and says, This is all phony. This is all just, this is all just a bunch of hooey. Well, I mean, you have, uh, you have anybody who actually hears anything from God. Yeah, we do. There's one guy. He doesn't know he doesn't call for Elijah. There's another prophet who's made himself known to uh, to Ahab at this point. His name is Micaiah. There's one guy, I don't like him. He never prophesies anything good about me. Always bad. Well, <laughs> the king said, the king shouldn't say that, Jehoshaphat replied. So the king of Israel called one of his officials, said, bring Micaiah forth at once. And, and so dressed in their royal robes, the king of Israel, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, were sitting on the floor. Uh, the thrones at the threshing floor by the entrance of the gate of Samaria with all the prophets prophesying before them. Now one of the, the most prominent of them was Zedekiah, son of Canaana, uh, who had made iron horns. Okay, now he's, he's, gone, he's, he's made iron horns and he's going around goring everybody and said, this is what the king of Israel is going to do. He's going to you know, just, and, and making a big, big to-do about how victorious Ahab and Jehoshaphat are going to be against the Syrian king. And all the other prophets were uh, prophesying the same thing. Attack Ramoth Gilead and be victorious. And the messenger said, look, you know, just kind of, this king really wants to hear a good message here. And Micaiah says, yeah, I'm going to tell him what the Lord tells me to tell him. And he gets up there. And the first thing when they get up there, okay, what does the Lord say? And say, well, hey, go. Have a great time. Sure, sure, you're going to win. Yeah, great. And Ahab looks at him and says, haven't I told you only tell me the truth? Say, so, all right, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the truth. Verse 19, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I said, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills, verse 17, like sheep without a shepherd. And the Lord said, these people have no master, let each one go home. The king said to Jehoshaphat, see, I told you he never says anything good. You think? Then Micaiah continued, Okay, let me tell you something else I saw. The word of the Lord sitting on his throne with all the host of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab into attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death there? And one suggested this and another that. And finally a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I'll entice him. By what means, the Lord's dad asked. I'll go out and be a lying spirit in the mouths of all the prophets, he said. You'll succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go do it. Now the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouths of all these prophets of yours. The Lord has decreed disaster for you. There are so many people who have so much problem with that. First of all, they're not getting the fact that this is a prophetic parable. 
this is, it's not, God does not have a throne and He doesn't summon spirits to come before Him and say, this, that, and, you know, and they're, they're coming. It, this, is a, this is a war council vision. This is not literally, this is not a literally, uh, this vision is not to be taken literally, but this message that is spoken should be taken to be literally true. And that is, God has a purpose. God has pronounced judgment on Ahab. And God is going to bring Ahab to this place, and this is where Ahab is going to meet the judgment that God has already pronounced on him. And God has all, it is God who is sovereign, who has ordained the means. Why are all these prophets telling him to go, and only one prophet telling him not? The one prophet telling him not, that's the true warning. But he's got to have the discernment as to who's the true and false prophet. And Ahab doesn't want discernment. He wants what he wants. That's always been Ahab. Because he's a weasel. In spite of his repentance after Naboth, he's still a weasel. He wants what he wants. And so it's going to be an easy thing. All of these spirits that say, you know, the word of the Lord came to me. It's a lying spirit. It's a demon. At this point, Zedekiah, who's the one who made the iron horns and has made a big production about, you know, everybody, you know, he's, he comes over and he decks Micaiah. Said, when did the Lord pass from me to you? And Micaiah just looks up at him and said, you'll know the answer to that when you're hiding for your life in a private room. Now, here's the intriguing thing about that. There is no follow-up in the story to that prophecy. We do not hear the end of that. We're just left to assume at some point Zedekiah is going to find out that he's believed a lie, that he's thought up, he's thunk up every prophecy that he's ever preached. It's not his word, but the Lord. It's not the Lord's word, but his own. Zedekiah will find that out when it's too late. That's what the point is. You're going to find out when it's too late. Ahab went out, and Ahab, knowing all of these threats, weasel that he is, he says, oh, you go ahead, Jehoshaphat, you wear your royal garments. I'm just going to dress up like, a, like an infantryman. And Jehoshaphat, for some reason, thinks that's a good idea. Jehoshaphat's kind of naive. The story goes on. In the midst of the battle, battle, the, the progress of the battle, I mean, it's just going back, I mean, it's just the battle. It's not one is winning, the other is, it's just the battle's going on. At some point, the king, Ben-Hadad, has told his guys, he's told his officers, forget about everything else, find Ahab and kill him. Basically, cut off the head. Find Ahab, kill him. They look and they see Jehoshaphat with the royal robes. They think it's Ahab and they start chasing him. And Jehoshaphat turns around and cries out. And they look and say, that's not Ahab. So they turn around they leave Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat's thinking like, thank you, Lord, but what? Ahab, meanwhile, he's just an anonymous, he's wearing an anonymous uniform. He's clothed like anybody else. They can't find him. They can't spot him a crowd. And it says, some archer aimed 
just pulled his bow at random. It focuses that. It doesn't just say an arrow hit Ahab. It says there was an archer who pulled his bow at random. He wasn't aiming at anything. It was just one of those things. It was volley fire. He just pulled his bow and let an arrow fly. He didn't. He, I shot an arrow into the air. I fell to earth. I know not where. The archer never knew what he hit. He hit Ahab in the one spot that his armor had a chink in it. God, it's specified in there because it's, it's not just a, a random arrow. It's an archer. This archer had been selected by God to kill Ahab anonymously. That is the point of the way that that's said. God determined this. And Ahab began, it didn't kill him immediately. But it struck in such a way the wound went deep enough Ahab began to bleed and he got weaker and he told his chariot go back home they took his chariot out of the battle and his chariot flooded with his blood as his life passed out of him and he died and they took him and outside the gates of Jezreel dogs licked Ahab's blood from his chariot according to the word of Elijah. I'm not going to draw more from the story. There you have it. Let's just go ahead and open the door and I'll be done. This has been our final talk on First Kings, and like any good part one, it's given us both a dramatic ending and a strong setup for a sequel. Thus far, only one of the three assignments God gave Elijah has been fulfilled. How will the others come about? And what's going to happen to the kingdom of Judah? And what will be the effect on the nation? And how will God turn the evil that men do to accomplish his purposes? We'll have to wait and see. Until then, this is Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.